Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Today we're going to be dealing with the subject of the, the prophet Samuel, this is part one, the prophet Samuel, part one. And um, this is a very, very powerful two weeks. I'm going to be doing next week uh, part two as well. And uh, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us understand uh, what you're saying and doing through this word. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're dealing with 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 8. Um, I'm not going to tell you the chapter and the verse. You just have to read the book for yourself. I'll just tell you the chapter. But we're trying to train everybody in the church to get to know the Word of God and to read it on their own, to study. Um, and it's no good to us if you don't read the Bible on your own. And, and so this church is all about making disciples. And what we try to do on Sunday is not just instruct you, but teach you how to read the scriptures on your own. And we expect you to go through the scriptures with us. So this week it's Samuel chapters 1 to 8. And next week uh, we're going to go through the rest of uh, 1 Samuel. So we're going to talk about uh, the preparation of a prophet leader, and the objective today is to encourage the congregation to know and obey the voice of the Lord. So that's our objective. Some key questions to answer, ask yourself, are we preparing our children and grandchildren to discern the voice of God and will of God? What kind of fervent intercession is taking place presently in our family for our children, church, and nation? Another question to ask yourself, what kind of godly traditions godly traditions that we honor uh, in our family. What do we honor in our family? What traditions? Have we surrendered our children and family to the Lord? Last but not least, a question to ask yourself is, am I a passive leader in my home like Eli, or am I intentional in the nurture of my children, family, and friends and neighbors in my home? And so this story highlights an unsung hero, in the Bible story, very few people talk about Samuel. Everybody talks about Elijah, David, uh, you know, all these other people. But Samuel is one of the most important biblical names that we should know. And his story mimics that of the Lord Jesus Christ, similar to last week. We got into the book of Ruth and showed how the uh, narrative of kinsman redeemer is basically the story of the pre-creation covenant that God made with himself, with the Godhead, and how that played itself out in human history. And the book of Ruth really highlights that pre-creation covenant. So today we're going to see how Samuel is a type and shadow of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to see the intersection between the family and the church. What is the role of the family? What is the role of the church? Uh, we're going to see 
how Samuel was both a political leader and a spiritual leader. We're going to see how Samuel, actually next week, is going to be dealing with how he raised up a school of prophets that actually began a, a whole generation of prophets resulting in Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Elijah, Elisha, all of these prophets came out of his school. So he was able to gather a company of prophets and intentionally train them as a spiritual father. We're going to see how he replicated the same mistake as his spiritual father, Eli, when it came to his children. Uh, and we're going to see how a lot of times the ministry of the Lord is passed on to our spiritual children, not just our biological children. So there's a lot to cover here, and I hope you uh, will carry, uh, uh, follow this. So we're going to do this in five movements. Movement one, we're going to read in chapter one how Hannah was barren. She was married to somebody by the name of Elkanah, and she was not able to have children. And when they went up to the house of the Lord uh, during the time of the sacrifice, the annual uh, time when they went to the house of God, it said that she went into the temple and she was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. She continued praying, and Eli, the priest, came and thought she was drunk because she was in great bitterness of soul, and she was moving her mouth, but nothing was coming out. So basically what she was doing was, as we understand in biblical instances, she was travailing in the spirit. She was groaning. She was inwardly uh, uh, in distress and groaning. And it tells us in Romans 8.26, but that kind of prayer, there is no words that articulate how somebody feels. It is a real deep passion and fervency in someone's heart. And so she seemed to be giving birth to something in the purposes of God in prayer. And she told Eli, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of the great anxiety and vexation of my soul. So Eli said, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning. They left, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord, and she gave Samuel to the Lord. So what are the lessons that we find in movement one? First, we see that God on his desperate, fervent praying. Uh, he never tells us in Scripture to say our prayers. Saying our prayers is an invention of human beings. But in Scripture is always, as Jesus said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Uh, most Christians in the body of Christ just say their prayers before going to bed. But there's no, no correlation in the Bible to living like that and thinking that you're going to get an answer from the Lord. It says that uh, 
in James chapter 5 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In other words, God expects fervency in our prayer. It tells us in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord with all my soul, all my soul, and all that is within me. The great commandment of the Lord is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the average American man who goes to church gets more excited over football and basketball than they do about Jesus. And they think it's strange if we praise God, if we pray fervently. But it's not strange if they go painted, uh, you know, up and, and spending all day in a parking lot tailgating and, uh, you know, celebrating and going crazy in a football game. It's because they love sports more than they love God. There's more passion. There's more self-identification with human beings and the things of creation rather than the creator. And uh, we get more excited. We go to concerts and we see people going like this. You know, it's like worshiping and like this. But they come to church and they're like they're in a funeral service. It's because they have passion for the worship of their idols. But they don't worship the living God. So God desires fervent prayer. The Bible tells us about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5 that in the days of his flesh he offered a prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. We see that exemplified in the Garden of Gethsemane when his soul was troubled even to the point of death. And he tried to get his disciples to watch him pray with him even one hour and they couldn't do it. They fell asleep. Uh, and so I remember going away to Bible school and then going on subsequent trips. And they used to have this thing where they would have quiet time. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And I found out after a few months that quiet time was when they went away with God and prayed. But my quiet time was always loud groanings and crying and tears. So I couldn't understand what kind of quiet time. Or, and then they said private devotions. I had to go away in a mountain somewhere or go away in the woods and pray. Uh, that's the Christianity I understood. That's what I see here. Where when they prayed, the house that they were meeting in was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke the word with boldness. That they were continually in prayer and supplication. And God visited them with Holy Spirit and fire and shook the room. That's the Holy Ghost that I know. That's the Jesus I know. I don't know this dead religious ritualistic Jesus where we want him going on a corner somewhere and having quiet time. When your heart is filled with glee, when you are exuberant about the things of God, when God is your delight and your joy, when you are living for God, when it's for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, when you're like Paul who said uh, that I will glorify God in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. You can't just go away in some corner every day saying a few prayers, not uh, allowing any kind of passion or physical uh, uh, embrace of God to come forth. And so this is the kind of God that we serve, the God who loves passion, the God who wants no other gods, the God is jealous of our life, of our time, of our heart, of our devotion, of our emotions, the God who will stand for nothing less than number one, the God will never stand for number two or number three. So he loves and honors desperate birthing prayer. 
tells us in Hebrews 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever wants to draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly, diligently seek Him. So after this, she weaned Samuel. He was born. And, uh, and it says that for this child I, I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So that also shows us why God answered her prayer. She was not only praying with all of her heart, but she was praying with God's kingdom in mind. She was praying with the desire to put first God's kingdom. Most Christians put themselves first, even in their prayer life. They could even be fervent in their prayer. But if your prayer is centered around yourself, if it's self-seeking, self-centered, self-affirming, self-desiring prayer, then uh, it's a little uh, uh, it's a surprise that very few of your prayers ever get answered. Uh, the Word of God teaches us in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 11, the Word of God teaches us that we ought to pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then it says, give us this day our daily bread. And so we need to understand that when we first pray, we are not to come with our own petitions. We are not to come with praying for our daily bread. That is not the proper way. That is not the protocol. That is not the framework. That is not the order of importance of prayer. The order of importance was laid out by Jesus when he said, Hallowed be thy name. There should be worship. We should minister to the Lord. We should put him first. We should love the Lord. We minister to Him first. Then it says, we pray for His kingdom to come. Still not praying for ourselves. Then it says, ask for bread. And in the American church, we have it reversed. We ask for bread. We come to God for our needs. We come to God for our wants. We put ourselves first in the prayer list, in the prayer chain. But God said, no, no, no. You put what I want first. Then, as you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, I will add everything the Gentiles seek anyway. God knows what you need before you ask. Before we say a word, God knows it. And so... God tests our heart. What is it that we want first? Who do we love first? What do we desire the most? Do we delight in God or do we delight in ourselves? Some people backslide. They fall away from God when God doesn't answer their prayers, when things don't go right. But we have to look at Job who lost everything and the devil had a bet. If Job had lost everything, then he wouldn't serve God anymore. Well, most Christians, uh, I, I don't want to say most, but many Christians would probably lose that bet. If God had that bet with Job uh, or with uh, uh, the devil, with somebody else. And then uh, Satan said, well, you know what? If you touch his physical body, he'll forsake you. And uh, then God allowed Satan to afflict him with boils. And then his wife said, curse God and die. But Job said, shall we only receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? He said, from dust we came, to dust we will return. And he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And so God is looking for people who eschew evil and love Him, who want Him more than their own life, who love Him more than life itself. David said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And apart from you I desire nothing on the earth. He said, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He said that I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He said, you are my water. You are my cistern. You are my manna. You are who I desire above all things. And so we see that God answered Hannah's prayer because uh, she prayed for a son that she can give to God, to God's service, to God's work. And that's one reason. She was not only fervent, but she was not fervent for herself. There are people who are fervent for themselves. They're desperate for themselves. They're desperate for their own needs. And of course, it's better to go to God when you have a need than somewhere else. But don't just be desperate for your needs. Be desperate to know God. Be desperate to worship God. Be desperate to please God. Be desperate to put His kingdom first before anybody and anything else. And so God tests our hearts. And she said, Lord, if you answer this prayer, I'm giving my son over to you. And I believe that's why God honored that prayer. And that is why subsequently after Samuel was born, she was allowed to give birth to other children. Why? Because God said, you give me your first and I'll give you everything else. If you ever put God first, what you put second will never be hurt. If you, you, you realize that to the extent that you put first God's kingdom, to that extent will God supply your own needs. Do you realize that's how it works? Instead, in the American church, we put our needs first. We have a name it and claim it. We have a prosperity gospel. We have a gospel where we can live any way we want and think that God's going to bless us. But I want you to understand something, that God is not obligated to bless disobedience. I remember reading about this woman who was in The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or whatever one of these shows. She claimed to be a Christian, and yet in order to win, she was sleeping with some of the contestants, and somebody confronted her on that and said, I thought you were a Christian. And she said, don't judge me. Jesus loves me just the way I am. But she is confusing the love of God with the affirmation of God. God never celebrates disobedience. God never celebrates immorality. God doesn't stop loving you, but God will not bless you. God will not bless uh, that kind of lifestyle. It says that God judges the sexually immoral and the adulterer and to keep the marriage bed pure. Well, you're being judgmental. Well, I'm just quoting Scripture. Hebrews 13.4. If you can't quote Scripture, if that is not your reference, uh, then you're in the wrong place uh, and you're worshiping a different Jesus and you're reading a different Bible than what I read. And so what we have to understand uh, is that God does not bless disobedience. God may still love you, but He doesn't affirm you. He doesn't affirm your lifestyle, and He doesn't affirm what you value. He honors uh, those who honor Him, and those who dishonor Him He lightly esteems, as we will read. And so He put God first in His prayer. She put God first. And this is what she said. I love it. She said, I have therefore lent Samuel to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Wow. We need to give our kids to God. 
We need to give our money to God. We need to give our car to God. It's not your couch. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not even your life. Your body was not even given to you for yourself. It was given to you by God for Him because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And God sent His Son. Died. So that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ who died and rose. And so she lent her son to the Lord. This is why we dedicate children and don't baptize them. You can't be baptized if you don't know the Lord. Because you have to repent and be baptized. But parents can most definitely dedicate their children. Even Jesus was dedicated on the eighth day. She was he was dedicated to the Lord. Movement two, we see that after Samuel was born, Hannah, now I love this because Hannah was a quote-unquote regular mom, just doing the stuff at home. She wasn't a leader. She wasn't a priest. There are some people who think only pastors should know the Word of God. Now, If you don't know the Word of God, how are you going to disciple your kids? How are you going to love your husband? Or how are you going to love your wife? Or how are you going to be that neighbor? And uh, I love this because she prayed a prayer that was so profound and prophetic that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was about 16 as well, not a leader, not a priest, uh, quoted what was called the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. She quoted much of what Hannah prayed and sang out incredible hannah was filled with scripture she dived into the biblical narrative she lived in the scripture she knew god's ways she had an experiential walk with god she had an encounter with god even though she wasn't a priest even though she wasn't a leader and even the pastors sometimes commit the sin of only reading the Bible to prepare a message. They commit the sin of only studying fervently when they have to preach. My God, she didn't have to preach, but she was immersed in God's ways, immersed in God's Word, immersed in God's uh, 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 intimacy uh, with God. She was immersed in that intimacy. And so we read part of it, 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, Hannah prayed and said, My soul or my heart exalts in the Lord. My, uh, uh, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Mary, almost quoting it word for word, said, My soul rejoices in the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Here we have, over a thousand years later, this prayer is being repeated, and much of this prayer repeated by Mary. Uh, and so this also shows us that Hannah was a type of Mary, and further elaborates the fact that Jesus was, had a type and shadow in Samuel. So Samuel was a type of Christ. That's why it's so important to read the Old Testament, to know God's ways and understand fully who Jesus is and was as the fulfillment of the story of God in Scripture. And so she had this incredible prayer, this prophetic prayer and song that was filled with Scripture, filled with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His ways. Even as Moses prayed uh, when he was on the mountain, he said, God, teach me your ways that I may know you. It's almost like God was saying, you're in my presence. Ask whatever you wish, whatever you want. Right now, I'll give it to you. So what did Moses say? Teach me your ways 
that I may know you. Give me your grace that I could know you more. So many people given the choice. If they knew that God was with them. Was going to answer any prayer they prayed. They would ask for money. They'd ask for victory over their enemies. Moses said, no. Teach me your ways. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's the whole secret of life, is to know God and to make him known. And so we see um, that Mary, uh, Hannah shadowed Mary, Samuel shadowed, shadowed Jesus. And then it says that Elkanah went home to Ramah, and that was the home country of Samuel. So Hannah was obviously there with her husband. But listen to what it says about Samuel. Now we're in movement two. This is chapter two, verse 11. And the boy, someone say the boy. He was a young kid. He was a child. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Wow. A toddler was ministering to the Lord. A toddler was taught to minister to God. Sometimes we think that we have to wait until they're teenagers before our kids could get to know God. Sometimes we think that, you know, we got to wait till they're 16 or 18. But sometimes by that time, it's too late. And so this is showing us that even as a toddler, we could begin to teach our children to minister to the Lord, to wait on God, to know God. So he was ministering to the Lord. And then we go to movement three. Now, this is a very sad part of this story. Says Eli, he was the guy raising up Samuel, the spiritual mentor, not the biological father, but the spiritual father. He was very old, and he kept hearing all the sins of his sons, what they were doing to Israel, how they were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if he sins against God, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So by every indication that we have, Eli was faithful in ministering in God's house doesn't say he ever neglected God's house. But when it came to his sons, he was passive. Somebody say he was passive. He was guilty of the sin of passivity. Now some people think that if I just do nothing, I'm not guilty. No, no, no. If you do nothing, then you're, dis you're disobeying. You're doing something. So instead of removing his sons... He was passive in allowing them to continue in the ministry. And what we have to understand is that even though we love our children, but if we tolerate nonsense 
in the house, then we are empowering our children to live in a manner which displeases God and dishonors our own family. And so that's what Eli was guilty of. He should have removed his sons. He was guilty of nepotism. He allowed his sons to stay in leadership because they are biologically connected to him. And so we see that even though his biological children were in the house of God, and this is where it gets really confusing to some people. Perhaps Eli thought that if I let my sons stay in the church or stay in the temple or stay in the ministry, that eventually they'll get it right. Sometimes we think because our kids go to church that our children will automatically serve God. But what this is teaching us is that there has to be an intentionality of building an altar in the house, of correction, of speaking into our children, that just because they are in the house of God doesn't mean they're going to love God, doesn't mean they're going to fear God. As a matter of fact, it seems that they had contempt for the things of God. Sometimes the kids get so familiar with church, so familiar with God, so familiar with the things of God because they don't see us taking it serious or they don't see us holding them accountable or they don't see us correcting them. They think that it is a light thing to dishonor. It's a light thing to have a lack of fear. It's a light thing to live any way you want in the house of God and in the family of God that they begin to have contempt for God Himself. And that's what happens if you don't correct your children. That's what happens when you don't intentionally uh, bring a way of, of life that's conducive to the things of God. And so even though they were in the house of God, this is where it gets confusing, God doesn't necessarily reveal Himself to the children or to you. There could be people that are sitting here right now that are not born again. There could be people sitting here right now. You've been coming to this church for the last 20 years and you're no closer to God than an unbeliever. Somewhere have never heard the gospel. Just because you are in a stable doesn't make you a horse. Just because you come into a building doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you hear preaching doesn't mean you're obeying it. Just because you're shouting amen doesn't mean it's doing anything for you. And we have to understand uh, that God expects that, that intentionality. And if we don't intentionally root and ground our children in our families, then they're going to take the things of God with contempt. And they're not going to fear God. They're not going to love God. And they're, they, they, whenever we lose the awe, whenever we lose the mystery, whenever we lose the majesty of God, even if we're parents, whoever we are. You could be a preacher and take this stuff for granted. I, I, I've been preaching for 42 years. I still pray for hours before I show up. I focus from Saturday night on. I prepare the message during the week. I don't get it on Saturday night special. I go over the message over and over again. I try to ask God to show me what to focus on. I take it for, I do not take this for granted. I preach as a dying man about to meet the Lord. I, I preach as if this is the last time I'll ever deliver a message. 
I've never gotten tired of God. I've never gotten tired of the presence of God. I never take you for granted. I never take what the message means to you for granted. I never take the importance and the significance of the preached Word. As Paul said, God manifested His Word through preaching that was entrusted to me. As he said in Titus chapter 1, God manifests His Word through preaching. He manifests His will through preaching. It is the preaching of the cross that saves those who believe. It is not the wisdom of this world that saves a man, but it's the preaching of the cross. And so, you can come to church and you can take it lightly. I never try to study just to feed the flock. My primary objective when I read the Word is to feed myself. Because if I can't feed myself, how could I feed you? I don't read the Bible for information, I read it for transformation. This past week, I flew to Argentina and back. I didn't put the television on once on the plane. 18 hours in the air. Read almost four books. Never had the television on once in the hotel. Had scripture playing all day. Sought God. Why? Because I'm not here playing games. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here because it's a profession. I'm not here because I'm trying to make a living. I'm here because uh, I'm a dying man preaching to dying men so that we can live a life that has some kind of meaning so that we can glorify God, that we can make a difference before we go to meet the Lord. Uh, and if you live 70, 80, 100 years, your life is still a vapor. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. You don't have a lot of time. This isn't a dress rehearsal. You're not going to get another shot. For it is appointed for men to die once and after that to face the judgment. God is going to hold me accountable for every word I've spoken in church. For every message I've ever preached. And that's why we have to take this serious. You say, how many hours did it take to prepare this message? It took me 42 years. This past week, I've read almost four books in five days because I had a lot of time on a plane in a hotel. If I am not seeking God, and I'm not hearing from God, and I'm not learning of God. How in the world am I going to disseminate anything of value to you? If you're not seeking God, waiting at His feet, ministering to the Lord, how in the world are you going to minister to yourself? How are you going to minister to your wife, your children, your co-workers? Well, a prophet showed up and rebuked Eli. I'm not reading the whole thing because it's getting late, but basically the prophet said, you honor those who dishonor me. And those who dishonor me, I will treat lightly. He said that you honor your sons above me. Wow. 
I love family, but not even your family should be a close second to the Lord. We are to honor the Lord more than our spouse and our children. And if they start going off the path, you don't follow them because you love them. You stay strong in the Lord and pray that they return. That's how you honor God. And uh, Eli, unfortunately, never did that. And then the prophet continued... And said that in one day, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, especially Hophni and Phinehas, would be killed because of the way they treated the Lord. Now let's go to movement four. I'm trying to go quickly here. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord, it says, and he was in the presence of Eli, and he was also near the Ark of the Covenant. That's powerful. Imagine being raised near the presence of God. And while he was ministering to the Lord, he was developing in a way that his spirit man was getting more and more influenced by the things of God. Now, people make a big deal about prophecy. The prophecy is the most important gift in the church because it edifies the church. But Paul said everybody could prophesy. Now, prophecy comes by spending time in God's presence. If you worship and you pray and your spirit man gets stronger, you're going to get to know God's voice. And you get to know God's voice not just for yourself but for others. So the simple gift of prophecy is activated. So Samuel was in the presence of God one day, and I'm going to just tell you the story. God said, Samuel, while Samuel is sleeping, and he gets up. And he runs to Eli and said, Eli, what do you want? He said, I didn't call you. Go, go back to bed, son. This happened three times. The third time he runs to Eli and he says, you called me. Eli discerned that it was God and said, go back. Next time you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He said that to the Lord when the Lord called him. And the Lord gave him a prophecy of judgment against Eli. Now this was going to be a big test because can you imagine you knew nobody but Eli. You didn't know what was going on with his sons. He was still a young kid. He probably had no idea what was happening. And God gives them this prophetic word of correction to his spiritual father, his mentor. Now what was the test? The test was, are you going to fear God or fear men? Before God released Samuel to minister to the nation, he had to first have the guts to minister to the high priest, to the leader who was sinning and causing the whole nation to sin. So that was his test. He had to go to somebody he looked up to and correct him in order for God to know that he was ready to deal with all of the issues of the fear of man that would come when he ministers to Israel. I remember having to be put in that position as a new Christian, having to correct those who actually had a hand in discipling me. And it's very intimidating at times, but 
is something you have to do. And uh, at times you have to do it, not all the time. And so he brings the word. He tells Eli what the Lord said. And Eli's response was very interesting. Eli said, he's the Lord, let him do what he wants. Instead of repenting, instead of crying, instead of saying, all right, Lord, please give me another chance. I'm going to talk to my sons. I'm going to stop this wickedness. Not only did he not listen to a prophet, now a young boy is giving him a word. Testimony of two or three witnesses shall every matter be established so he's getting a word from his protege, and that still didn't shake him up. In other words, now I'm a bad example to my spiritual son. I'm not only a bad example to my biological children, now I'm a bad example to my spiritual son, my heir, my successor. And that still didn't shake him up. There's some people that they live in such a way that they are hurting the faith of younger Christians, hurting their boys, hurting their girls, hurting their spouse, hurting their neighbors, hurting their bad witness, and it still doesn't shake them up. Oh, well, he says, it is the Lord, let him do what he wants. And in one day, in fulfillment of that prophecy, we go to movement five, God removed Eli and his two sons. His two sons were killed in battle. Eli fell backwards when he heard the news and broke his neck and died. What was happening was God was getting rid of the old, ritualistic, dead religious system that had no heart for God, that abused the people that used the people, that objectified the people in the name of God, taking from people, in the name of God, sleeping with people, in the name of God, bribing people, in the name of God, coercing people, in the name of God, manipulating people. As I said, Samuel was a type of Jesus, not an accident. When Jesus came, it was the beginning of the end for the Pharisaic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the temple sacrifice, all of that that didn't have the Shekinah glory anymore. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 shows how God left Jerusalem in his chariot throne and never returned again. Not even when Herod rebuilt the temple. Not even when the temple was rebuilt after they returned in the days of Nehemiah did the Shekinah ever return. But when Jesus came, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was showing that he was the true temple. And when he came, it began the beginning of the end of the false priesthood of ritual without relationship, of legalism without any true faith of the Pharisaic Levitical system that was shaken up and that was put away and totally destroyed actually by A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. So what happened was when Samuel's to arise before that was complete, God had to remove the old leaders. Wow. Sometimes you got to die to your past in order to move into your future. You cannot drive while looking at the rearview mirror. You're going to crash. 
You can't keep on looking at your past. You can't keep on going over your mistakes. You can't keep on going over your old glory. You can't keep bragging about what you used to be. You can't keep thinking about what was. But you have to understand that God is the God who is the past God, the present God, and the future God. And when you get in God, you have a great future. You have a great present. You don't just have a past. And so right now we have to understand that as Samuel was coming up, God had to do away with the old God in order to release the new age of Samuel that was going to start a company of prophets that was going to turn Israel upside down and right side up. So we see Samuel, it says, grew and the Lord was with him. This is right after Eli and his sons died. It's written this. And it says that God allowed none of his words to fall to the ground. The Holy Spirit is just reminding me. It's the same as in Romans 6. The Bible says that our old man has to be crucified with Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. It's not just a religious Levitical system. It's our old nature, our old man. Do you understand how all of this comes together? And so um, there is only resurrection after we have crucifixion. And God deals with the past in order to move us into the present. And so Samuel grew. The Lord didn't allow any of his words to fall to, his, to the ground. He went on a circuit year by year. He traveled all over. He was both prophet and judge. And at that point, God had no king. And then Samuel is getting old. This is where it gets sad. Ah, I wish I could have ended the preaching at that last point. Successful Samuel, a circuit preacher. He had to go to three different cities where people knew to meet him, to hear the word of the Lord for the nation, the word of the Lord for themselves. Um, and uh, then he went back to his home in Ramah. So maybe there were four areas that he uh, constantly visited or lived in. And God let none of his words fall to the ground. He was a mighty man of God. If there ever was a mighty man of God. But yet, he had a blind spot. Unfortunately, he seemed to replicate the sins of Eli. Because it says that when Samuel was getting old, chapter 8, he made his sons judge over Israel. Well, he put his biological sons in there. That's what he, he was taught to do. Eli did that. But it says, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. How sad. But they turned aside after gain. It's one thing to say, well, they weren't called to be prophets. That's not what it's saying. It said that they didn't serve God. My, well, my kids do not have to be a pastor like me to serve God. I don't care what they, they become as long as they serve and love God. So that's not what it's saying here. Say they didn't know his ways. They didn't follow his life. But they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They lived like the sons of Eli. I can almost cry reciting this. It shows us that you could be involved in the ministry. You could be caring for everyone else's soul and neglect your own family. 
he assumed that just because his sons saw him, and their sons probably were in the house of God too, and saw everything, that he didn't have to do anything. I'm guessing he was passive just like Eli, where he never corrected them, he never took time for them, he never trained them, and he never intentionally tried to disciple them and raise them up. Oh my God. You could be a fireball. You could be the greatest leader the world has ever seen. But it doesn't mean your children will automatically follow in your footsteps. You need to have an altar in your house. You need to regularly create the right atmosphere and take time for those children. And those grandchildren, you know, you're at the age now, some of you have grandchildren, where you are helping cultivate their walk. And this is why God has given us the scriptures, that we would learn from the mistakes of these people. And as we, we're going to get into the story of David, and we're going to see, I'm so sad, Eli was passive at home, never discipled his kids. He passed it on to Samuel. Samuel lost his kids. They weren't following the ways of God. Samuel was the mentor of David, who became a great king, slew Goliath, but his kids didn't serve the Lord either. You see the generational pattern? One of his sons raped his daughter, his sister. Another one tried taking the kingdom. Solomon wound up going after foreign gods. Oh, I mean, it, it was a mess, the family life of David. But God still loved him and called him. But I don't think it's an accident that he repeated the sins of Eli. Folks, we have to have our eyes opened. There's more I could say. I want to end it on this note. Impossible to get through eight chapters in one message. But I'm going to ask you the following questions. Do you yet know the Lord? Has his word been revealed to you? You could be sitting in this church for 30 years and not even have a relationship with God. Another question to ask yourself. Have you dedicated your family to the Lord? Do you have an altar in your house? I am by no means a perfect father, but as busy as I was, whether traveling, ministry, I don't care if I got home at two in the morning. I get up every morning, make breakfast for the kids so I could disciple them, read to them. Then I would drive them to school. Why? Because what good is it if I won the world and lost my children? And I remember we had that Wednesday night family devotion. And I was involved in certain uh, certain hobby. I was about to get certified in a very high level in martial arts. I'll tell you what it was. About 
to get my first black belt. And they change the night to Wednesday night where I could train. I was like a few months away from getting a black belt. I quit. It wasn't even a close decision. Never got it. Wound up leaving the school after being there for years. Because that belt is going to burn up one day. But the heart and soul of my kids is going to have eternal ramifications. I can't imagine telling him, we're not going to have family night for six months until daddy gets his black belt. Oh, then the black belt is more important than my family or their walk. It's like parents taking their kids on Sunday to soccer games and putting sport. I told my son, I don't care how good you get in basketball, you're going to church on Sunday. If I have to bring you somewhere else at 8 o'clock in the morning or you go to a Sunday night meeting, you're never going to miss church. And there are parents that are taking their kids to ball games. There are some parents that miss church for three, four months during baseball season or soccer season. I'm thinking, oh my God, you are teaching your children that sports are more important than being in church. I don't know what Bible. Are we all reading the same Bible? If you're not intentional about saving your family, the devil is very intentional. The public school system is very intentional in discipling your kids. Their celebrity influences are very intentional. Social media is very intentional. Certain communities, I don't have to mention the names, are very intentional. You think if you're not intentional, they're just going to become Christians and serve God? Another question to ask yourself before we end this. Are you reproducing harmful or godly generational habit patterns? Are you creating the atmosphere in your home necessary for your children and grandchildren to hear the voice of God? Are you living as if God is king or you are king or somebody else? You might say, Pastor, I didn't come here to feel guilty. If you don't want to hear the truth, this isn't the right church for you. There's a lot of churches in New York. You just want to feel good? You're probably not in the right place because we're here to teach you the whole counsel of God and sometimes you're not supposed to feel good sometimes we're supposed to feel miserable sometimes we're supposed to feel guilty sometimes it should motivate us to get on our face and ask God to forgive us and ask God to change us and ask God to deal with us And I guess the last thing I would say is, if there's one thing you could take home with you, passivity is a sin.
passivity is a sin. That's the sin of Eli. He didn't sleep with women, but God judged him. He wasn't bribing. There's no record of Eli sinning. There's no record of Eli doing anything wrong. But yet, he was judged the same day his sons were killed. Why? Because he permitted them. He affirmed them. I don't remember. I preached two services. I don't know what I said in this service, what I said the last one. But bears repeating if I already said this. People get the love of God and affirmation confused. God loves you, but God may not affirm you. God may not affirm your lifestyle. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee you, if your lifestyle isn't lining up with the Word of God, He doesn't affirm your lifestyle. And unless we understand how utterly sinful we are, we will never go to the cross and never receive forgiveness and never allow God to change us. If you want to live your life ignorant, living in sin and thinking God still blesses you, go ahead. My heart will grieve. My heart will break. God's heart will break. But He can't help somebody who intentionally is stiff-necked and hardens their heart when they hear the voice of the Lord. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.